As we return today to our study of the life of Jesus, we come almost to the end of the book, to John's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and with it, once again, I think, to a question that we'd all love to kind of raise our hands, and if nobody would judge us, we'd like to ask. And I say once again because last week we looked at the crucifixion of Jesus and we asked a question then too, and the question was, my goodness, was this actually necessary? And here's why we asked that question, because when we looked at it, it was absolutely gruesome. It was absolutely brutal. And that's just the physical aspect. And then we developed the idea that, you know what, the physical part of the sufferings of Christ were the least of His sufferings for our sin. And we who really honestly don't appreciate the significance of our sin kind of looked at it all and went, you know, I mean, really? Is that what it took? Was this necessary? And the answer to that, if you were with us, was yes and no. No, in the sense that God has never needed us, doesn't need us, will never need us, and so therefore was under no obligation at all to devise a way by which to rescue us from our sin. He could have left us in it. But yes, in the sense that God, for His own glory, has chosen a people to be His prized possession, a people that He is calling out of every nation, out of every language, out of every race, out of every tribe, out of every tongue, out of every age of mankind. He is uniting together through one faith in one Savior and through our conformity to the image of that Savior in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and in so many other things, including mission. And because He has decided to love us, He was caused by His love to, yeah, okay, devise a way by which to rescue us from, I'm going to say it, the horror of our sin. We don't see it that way. That's why we question whether it was necessary. And that way, that was in fact necessary, is the cross of Jesus Christ that we looked at last week. And so as a result, we said, well, okay, the cross then is both the single greatest demonstration of the passionate love of God and just personalize it, take it to yourself for you if you have faith in Him or if you come to faith in Him. But then it is also the most passionate demonstration of his hatred for my sin and for yours. It was his love that sent him and held him there, but it was our sin that caused him to have to do it. And the proper response to that, guys, is to gaze unblinkingly at our Lord on the cross and to love him because look at how much he's loved us. And then it is to look at our sin the same way He does. It's to stop coddling it. It's to stop nurturing it. It's to stop treasuring and cherishing it even more than we cherish the one whom we love. So last week we got together, we looked at John's account of the crucifixion, we asked, was it necessary? This week we come to the resurrection, and here's the question. I'm going to ask it because I know some of you would like to. Here's the question. Did this even happen? And and I say that because this, what we're going to read today, what happens with Jesus does not square with our experience with death and burial, does it? I mean, we bury our loved ones, guys. They die, we bury them, and then we don't expect them to show up for dinner that night. We don't get miffed after five or six days when they haven't called. It's like, I can't believe, you know, Bill has not called me, and I, you know, how dare he? We don't race to the mailbox, you know, like racing one another to get there because we just so enjoy getting the postcards from them from all the exotic places that they're visiting. Hey, we're in Oahu, surf's up, you should join us. It does not work that way. Here's how we experience it. 
They die, we bury them, that's it. Unless the Lord returns. But until then, that's it. Well, that's not what's going to happen with Jesus as we're going to see today. John is going to come to us. He's going to tell us a very different tale. There is death, absolutely certain. There is burial. We'll study that today. And there is resurrection. And I think part of the problem, part of the struggle, part of the reason why somewhere deep within us we want to go, hey, um, just, uh, you know, please don't judge me, but did this really happen? Is because we treat Jesus like everyone else and he's not like anyone else. And John, from the beginning of his gospel, has been saying that to us. Listen again to the first words that he says. Speaking of Jesus Christ and calling him the Word, he says, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, that's Christ, and the Word was what? The Word was God. Wait a minute, because that changes everything. That changes the whole way that I look at and approach the life of Jesus Christ. Suddenly, all of the things in his life that, you know, a lot of people kind of go, oh my goodness about, including the resurrection, make perfect sense. So now the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak. Hey, the guy that's paralyzed 38 years, Jesus comes to him and says, get up. Take up your mat. No, 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 really. You, you're not, no, you're not going to need rehab. Just, I'm going to give you those capacities. Just, just get up. It's going to be different. It's going to be cool. Just go with me on this. Your son is sick. He's in another town. I, I don't need to follow you. I don't need to come with you. I don't need to lay hands on him. He's well. Just go home. Walking on water. Stilling the storms, calming the waves, commanding nature, turning water to wine, as we just sang. Why is that befuddling if this man is the Lord Almighty? Why is that unusual? Why is that an issue? And what about power over death? Jesus comes and he says, listen, I have authority to lay my life down. And, and this makes me different from everybody else, I have authority to take it back up again. Know this, I am going to lay it down in death for your sin as the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John has instructed. And on the morning of the third day, and everyone heard him say this, even his adversaries, I'm going to take it up again. And here's why I can do that. Because I'm not like your grandfather. I'm not like your sister. I'm not like your friend whom you buried. And I'm not like you. I'm like you in the sense that I have your humanity, a man who dies for men, yet I am without sin. But I am also God. So whereas it would be unreasonable if I was to die for you to set a place setting for me for that night, for dinner, as much as I'd like to be there, to expect that I would call you within five or six days. and Man, I can't believe Tom's blowing me off like this. You won't be getting any postcards. Jesus is completely different. Jesus is completely other. Jesus rises from the dead, and then he leaves an empty tomb behind, an empty tomb that everybody has to somehow give an answer for. We pick up our study today in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 38. 
where John says this, he says, after these things, and in case you missed it, that means after this man, who is God-made man, has come into this planet to live the perfect life that God requires of all of us, has lived that life and then taken upon himself our sin and voluntarily gave himself over to the religious leaders of the Jewish people, who then falsely accused, falsely charged, falsely convicted, falsely abused him, turned him over to Pilate, who turned him over again, now this time to his soldiers who stripped him naked and flogged him, meaning literally shredded and mutilated him, leaving him semi-conscious, if at all, and barely alive, not strong enough, the other gospel writers tell us, to carry the horizontal beam of his cross all the way to the place of his crucifixion. Too weak even to do that after they shredded him, after they put the crown of thorns on his head, after they beat him beyond recognition, after they plucked out parts of his beard, and after also they laid that beam down on the ground. And as we talked about last week, he laid himself down on it. Nobody takes my life from me, the Lord says. I give it for you. Stakes driven through his wrists, lifted up onto the horizontal beam, collect his feet up, stakes driven through his feet, and after Jesus, for hours just to try to get a breath, dragged his back up and down that rough wooden beam, pushing and pulling against the stakes in his wrists and feet until he failed for strength and suffocated. After One of his four executioners took a spear to verify that he was in fact dead and stabbed him in the side from which blood and and water come forth, emblematic of life, of cleansing. After, according to Roman law, all four of them signed his death certificate. The professionals in death have said, yep, he's he's gone, he's dead. After these things, John says... Joseph of Arimathea, who John now tells us was a disciple of Jesus, but what's the next word? Secretly. Why? For fear of the Jews. Well, what does he have to be afraid of? He's part of the religious establishment. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a wealthy Jew of great notoriety. He is part of this leading class that has conspired against and succeeded in crucifying the one that he has been a secret disciple of all this time. And we don't know what the record of the arguments were. We don't know how the votes went. But here's the deal. It is not safe to be a disciple of Jesus. Over and over again, as we look through this passage today, you're going to see that the disciples of Jesus are hiding behind locked doors. And here's why. They're afraid that they're going to be next. And so also might Joseph have been. It was not popular at the office for Joseph to come out as a follower of Christ. It was not even popular with the Romans for Joseph to come out as a follower of Christ. Jesus Christ was crucified as a seditionist, as an alleged king, rival to Caesar, even though it was very clear that he wasn't that, at least not a rival, though definitely a king. 
Something about seeing Christ on the cross changed everything for this man, Joseph of Arimathea, at which point he took his reputation and maybe his business and possibly even risking his own life and threw it all under the bus in light of the one who hung naked publicly bearing his shame. And he realized something that we need to realize, that Jesus is not just someone we keep in here. He's not someone we have a private relationship with. The Bible knows nothing of secret disciples. He's somebody we live for outwardly, humbly, and speak of every chance we get, no matter what that does. See, seeing Him on the cross cures us of these things. And it certainly cured this man. And as we'll see in a second, he's not alone. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly until this point, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. Here's what Joseph is fearing. What he's fearing is this. When they crucified criminals in those days, and they're going to take Jesus' body down, as you recall from last week, before sundown, so that his body, you know, hanging on the cross doesn't hang over the Sabbath and the Passover and desecrate the land and all that stuff. So they've got to do something with the body. What they would do is they had just sort of a general grave and they would just take these guys who have been crucified as criminals and throw them all in one place. Joseph will not have that for his Lord. So he goes to Pilate and he asks permission to take away the body of Jesus. And the word of this spreads through his little peer group. You can imagine the text messages. Are you out of your mind? Do you know what you're doing? Do you have any idea what effect this is going to have on your family? Do you realize what your kids are now going to go through as part of our school? Your wife just lost every friend she has. And maybe you'll be joining that Jesus in whatever tomb you put him. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and he took away his body. He came with his servants, no doubt. But then notice this, Nicodemus also. Now, wait a minute. Who's that? Well, John tells us. He's reminding us of what happened in chapter 3 of his gospel. He says, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. You remember that guy? He's also part of this governing body. He's also wealthy and all of this stuff. He's just like Joseph. And he had come to Jesus at night so that no one would know he came. Is that you? Is that you in your office? Is that you in your school? Is that you in your relationship? See, Jesus, for these guys, he was in here, but he wasn't out here anywhere. I think they're teaching us that at some point that ends, and that point, that's the cross. So Nicodemus also, he joins forces with this guy, and he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and of aloes, these burial spices, about 75 pounds of them in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus, and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews, which practically speaking means that they took his naked. And it's important you see that he's naked because they're able to see his body completely. They took his naked body down off of the cross, and they washed him. 
And then they took a long linen strip that's more than twice the length of his body, and they laid him upon it lengthwise or longwise, and then they wrapped it over his head and tucked it down around his feet, and then taking these spices, which they mixed up into some kind of a paste, it's sort of a sticky consistency, they began to mummify him by taking long ribbons of linen strips coated with this sticky, smelly paste, starting with his toes, they would wrap his feet and then tightly wrap his legs all the way up under his arms, and then they would pin his arms at his side, and then again starting with this sticky, pasty wrap to tightly wrap his arms all the way up to his shoulders, all the way up to his neck, and a separate cloth for his head. And here's what they didn't do. Before they wrapped the head, they did not insert a snorkel, just in case. They didn't cut him any air holes, you know, like in in the event that he's still breathing or maybe still alive. Four men who were professionals in death signed off on the fact that he was dead. These guys and their servants were handling, washing, embalming his dead body. Good grief, if he was breathing, they would know. The Lord's gone. And so having embalmed him, John says in verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb. And the garden is not, you know, carrots and corn, and it's not flowers. It's an orchard or it's a vineyard. Likely it's owned by Joseph of Arimathea because we're told that he owns the tomb. It's his tomb. The tomb itself was not a hole in the ground like we commonly think of. Oh, the tomb, that's something we dig in the ground and we put the casket. No, not in their day. It is a tomb that's a man-made cave that's hewn out of solid stone. It has a door about four and a half feet tall and about two and a half feet wide customarily. If you come with us to Egypt in March or to Israel in March... You'll see an example of one of these tombs at what's called Gordon's Calvary. You can go in it. You can see the little area where, you know, they would prepare the body and embalm him and whatnot, and you can see different places where they would lay bodies. And the way that it worked in those days is they would lay the body in one of these tombs, and they would allow it to deteriorate to the point where it's nothing but bones, and then they would collect up the bones and put them in a little ossuary. And then the next part of the family or person in the family could, you know, they had like multiple places. It was a family tomb, but it was a new one in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, that is to say, because this is Friday and at sundown on Friday, the Sabbath, which is Saturday, begins. It goes from sundown to sundown and it's getting late in the day. So because this is a Jewish day of the preparation and the sun is beginning to go down, since this tomb was close at hand... They laid Jesus there. And then here's what else they did, because we know this from reading the other gospel accounts. They then, having put him into this tomb, rolled this giant stone slab or disc in front of the doorway. And this, too, was very common. And again, you would see this at Gordon's Calvary. It's the same kind of a deal. It's a big, giant disc. It's a big stone slab. And it's actually set in a um, kind of a rut, if you will, that's dug into the stone. And that kind of goes a little downhill, so it would roll into place, but to roll it away, you're pushing it uphill. And the estimated weight is about three to 4,000 pounds. So you need a gang to get this stone out of the way is the idea. So the body of Jesus, the tomb of Jesus, is guarded by this stone, but more than that, because as Matthew tells us as well, the Jewish religious leaders had heard Jesus say, hey, you know what, on the third day, coming back. 
So they went to Pilate and said, you need to post a guard at this tomb so that no funny business occurs. And Pilate agreed, and he sent what's called a custodian. A custodian was anywhere between four and 16 Roman soldiers, each one of which was taught to defend six square feet of land, 16 of which were expected to be able to guard 36 acres. Is that right? No, yards, much easier. 36 square yards against the invasion of an entire battalion. These are pretty tough guys. There was actually a book written about the various methods of the Roman soldiers, and it was called The Military Institutes of the Romans, and and parts of that book were used to prepare our Green Berets before they went off to war in Vietnam. There were 18 things that a Roman soldier would be executed for. Let me just tell you about the most relevant one for purposes of our conversation. It was sleeping on the job. They were not allowed to sit on the job. They were not allowed to lean against anything on the job. And if they were caught sleeping on the job, they would be burned alive. You don't have to do that to too many guys before the word gets out. So Jesus' body is guarded by the stone. It's guarded by the guards. But then also they set a Roman seal, which could only be placed, by the way, in the presence of a Roman guard unit in which stood for the power and authority of Rome. And if it was broken, here's what they would do. They would bring out, you know, the CIA and the FBI or their version of it. They would hunt you down and then they would crucify you. Get this, upside down. That's known. John says, so because of the Jewish day of preparation, because it was Friday afternoon, the Sabbath was going to begin at sundown, and the clock was ticking. Since Joseph's tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there, guarding him with a stone, and then, additionally, a guard unit and a seal. And then, John says, and it points to the godness of Christ. It's subtle, but think about it. He says, now, on the first day of the week... Wait a minute, what day is that? It's Sunday. So he's put in the tomb on Friday, day one. He lies in the rest of death, does he not? On Saturday, on the Sabbath, he will rise on Sunday. That's the third day. But if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, which John does at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning, that's the same language. What does God do on the seventh day, on Saturday? Having completed all of his labors, God rests. Jesus is God. This pattern is being repeated in his life. It's the pattern by which he brings us life. So anyway, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, and according to the other gospels, some other women as well, came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And if you know the accounts from the other gospels, what are they doing? They're coming bringing burial spices. Now, would you do that if you expected Jesus to be alive? I'm going to go with no. And more than that, what they're talking about is, hey, you know, when we get there with our burial spices so we can put more on him or pack it around the body or whatever, who are we going to get to move this big stone for us? So they are are they expecting a rolled away stone and a risen Jesus? And no. But it is what they get. Mary Magdalene and these other ladies came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and they saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so John says that she, Mary, ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John himself, the one who's writing this account, and she says to them, 
guys, Jesus is risen from the dead. Do you remember what he said that thing about the third day? And, I, you know, we all kind of rolled our eyes and we thought, oh, yeah, because our experience with death is you bury them and then, then that's it. But, but I think he's actually alive I, 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 and the tomb is empty. And I, she doesn't say anything like that. She's not buying it yet. She runs to them and she says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. You take someone out when they're dead. You have to carry them. And we don't know where they have laid him. That's the posture of death. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, with John, and they were going toward the tomb, and both of them were running together. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter because he's younger in all likelihood and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, notice what he sees. He saw the linen cloths that had been wrapped around the dead body of Jesus. Now, that's a pretty big clue. I mean, that's weird. If they're just going to move him, because, you know, it was Friday and it's Joseph's new tomb. And I mean, they were pressed for time. So just throw him in there and then we'll get the Sabbath over with. And then we'll move him, which is clearly what they think has occurred. We'll put him somewhere else, but not in my really nice tomb. Why would they unwrap his body? Or, Or if they're grave robbers, why would they unwrap his body? Why would they, as we'll see in a second, fold up? the cloths even, or at least part of them, and it doesn't make any sense. So they look in, and and, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in, John, and then Simon Peter came following him. He arrived huffing and puffing. He's taking oxygen. He's, and then he goes in, and what happened? He went into the tomb, and he too saw the linen cloths that had been wrapped around the dead body of Jesus lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, being emboldened by Peter, and he saw and believed. So it's starting to come together for him. But not for anyone else, and not even, I think, for him completely. For as yet they did not understand, he says, that the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes in which they had been hiding ever since the crucifixion. Why? Again, because they're afraid that they're next. But then John says this, verse 11. He says, but Mary, who you'll recall, ran to get them. And then the boys ran off to the tomb, right? But Mary followed them back. And Mary stood there weeping outside of the empty tomb. And please understand that the tomb was empty. And pretty much nobody disputes that. And I'll tell you why. It is a historical fact that these cowardly disciples of Jesus who hide behind locked doors after his crucifixion, fearful that they're going to be next, shortly after his crucifixion, charged into the very presence of the people that they had been fearful of, that they had been hiding of, and declared that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. Nobody argues about that. That happened. Fact. It is an established historical fact that the Jews and the Romans, who would love to have disputed that, couldn't. And here's why. Because their most obvious option in putting Christianity to death in a day was to go down to the tomb where their Roman guards were to break the seal, to roll the stone back, and to bring out the dead body of Jesus and go, you mean this guy? Because here he is. Well, they couldn't do it because the tomb was empty. 
So you've got to do something with the empty tomb. There have been multiple theories by brilliant people developed. I want to give you a few. It has been proposed, and this is the oldest of the theories, that the cowardly disciples of Jesus stole the body of Jesus, buried it somewhere else, where I guess it still is, and then went into the temple courts confronting the people they had been hiding from and declared that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. But I think if you're going to believe that, then you've got to believe that these cowardly guys either snuck past the sleeping Roman soldiers, oh, wait, they don't do that. They get burned alive for that. Darn. Okay, so then they took on the Roman soldiers, you know, these fishermen, and they overpowered them. Okay. Then they broke the Roman seal, knowing that that would call out the CIA and the FBI and earn them a crucifixion upside down. Then they rolled away the three to 4,000 pound stone, and then they took the dead body of Jesus out, knowing, of course, that, well, he's dead, and then they buried his dead body somewhere else where it rots to this day, and then, knowing full well that it would bring them poverty, persecution, beatings, imprisonments, and torturous deaths, which, parenthetically, it did for all but one. They charged out into the world and declared Jesus risen from the dead, knowing full well that it was a complete and total lie, and not one of them ever recanted. Wrote it with their blood, this lie. So that's one theory. Another is that um, it's called the swoon theory. Jesus didn't really die. That's the theory. Uh, He just kind of passed out or something. He appeared as though he was dead. But then once they placed him into the tomb, you know, he revived and got out somehow and then declared himself to be risen. and, And then I guess he went into hiding. But that's what set his disciples off with this resurrection message. Well, okay, if we're going to believe that, let's think about that one too. That means that Jesus would have had to survive the scourging, the beatings, the crown of thorn, the crucifixion being stabbed in the spear or with a, in the side with a spear. Right? Remember, he was too weak to even carry his cross, and then he, after that, he was crucified. He must have fooled Jesus with with his death. All of these professional executioners who signed his death warrant, I guess, probably the people who took him off the cross and washed his body and carefully embalmed him. They didn't notice that he was still breathing either. And then when they put that sticky stuff on his head, you know, because there was no snorkel, he then had to hold his breath, I don't know how long. But at least until after they got him behind the stone, you know, the three to 4,000 pound stone, so then after he woke up or, or held his breath and realized the coast was clear, then he somehow unwound himself, <clears throat> moved on his own the three to 4,000 pound stone uphill, snuck past the sleeping soldiers who don't sleep because that's what they get burned alive for doing, beat them up, what's the other option? Walked several miles to find his disciples, appeared to them, and and somehow convinced them that he was the risen Christ, and then went off to live in obscurity. Let me give you the third theory. These are the three best. The third theory is that the women went to the wrong tomb, even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke all said that they were there when he was placed into the tomb. So I guess they were all confused that morning. Oh, no, it's this tomb. No, it's this one. No, it's this one. No, it's You know what? It's dark. So, All right, let's say they all went to the wrong tomb. Did Peter and John go to the wrong tomb? 
What about the Romans? They had a guard unit there. Did they not know where it was? What about the Jewish authorities who came in to make sure that, you know, that this happened in the seal and the whole, that, that, were they confused on it too? And like, everybody's confused. It's just a confusing day. What about Joseph of Arimathea? He owned the dadgum tomb. I guess he missed it. Nicodemus? Seems the GPS that the angels were using failed them that day too. Look, I don't want to make light of this too much, but I do want to say that what is unreasonable to believe about me, that is to say that you're going to bury me and I'm going to show up for dinner, is not unreasonable to believe about Jesus Christ, who is God, and who leaves an empty tomb that if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you do need to come up with an answer for because it's empty. He's not there. He's risen. And that changes everything. And so John says in verse 11 again, but Mary, who had apparently followed them back to the tomb, stood weeping outside of the empty tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they spoke to her. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she's not understanding these are angels yet. Because she enters into kind of a normal dialogue with them. She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. See, that's what you do with a dead body. I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. See the difference? Standing is the posture of life. He's alive. But she did not know that it was Jesus, partly probably because of her tears and partly because he was the last person she was expecting to see standing, is my guess. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, the employee of Joseph of Arimathea, who, you know, obviously must have told him to move the body and she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, <laughs> carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll, I'll take his dead body. I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, and I love this, he says, Mary, he calls his sheep by name and they know his voice. She knows his voice. See, hearing that, that was it. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, and she fell to the ground in worship, and she wrapped him herself around his feet so tightly, I think, because I think what she was kind of saying in this motion is, don't you dare ever leave me like this again. You ever do that? Like there's this person that you love, you know, and you haven't seen him in forever, and you give him one of those hugs that's more than just a hug? Or maybe you've been hugged like that, you know, by a mom or dad, and you're, 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 you know, at some point you're patting them on the back going, okay, I think we're done, you know. We about done. Is this about you? Okay, well, just keep going then. Just, you know, but I'm losing circulation in my arm, so. She loves the Lord. Jesus, I think, smiling, said to her, do not cling to me. And, and I think he's saying as though I'm just going to disappear on you any second again. For I've not yet ascended to the Father. Now, look, that's in the plan. I'm going to ascend, but it's not going to be today. 
and I've got a mission for you. He says, but go to my brothers. You know those guys who all ran from me and deserted me in my greatest hour of need, but whose sins I died for, whose betrayals have been covered by my blood, whom I hung naked for publicly. Those guys? Those whom I love, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my God and, or to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God, for that's who God is for those of us who believe in Jesus, the God-man who lived and died and alone rose again. And so Mary Magdalene went and she announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, you know, and, and, and that he had said these things to her. And they got up and ran to the tomb because they're thinking, great, this is awesome. And Jesus, he's alive and he's hanging out at the tomb, or at least we'll get to see an angel. You know what they do? They laugh at her. This is funny. They think she's nuts. Because look, here's our experience with death. Our loved ones die and then we bury them, and yeah, that's it. Not with Jesus. And so here he comes to them. He is so humble. He condescends to us all of the time, to our doubts, to our fears, to our weaknesses, to our deficiencies. He's ever coming to us. He is ever faithful. So he comes to them. John says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, little reminder, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews because, you know, they're brave revolutionaries. They're getting jacked up to go die for a lie. That's consistent. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He wants them to know, hey, guys, this has actually happened. This is really me. Go ahead, touch, feel. Which is what he says to Thomas, who we read about in verse 24. It says, now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, right on, I've been waiting for him to rise from the dead. I thought this is exactly what was going to happen. Didn't I tell you this? No. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, I will never believe because here's the pattern. Death, burial, that's it. Unless you're Jesus. And so then eight days later, his disciples were inside, and this time Thomas was with them. And although the doors were still locked and they were still hiding, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. That's his message. Isn't that beautiful? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. He says it three times just in this passage. He came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. It's kind of like, you know what? I'm alive from the dead. Chillax. Peace be with you. Like, I'm all anxious over my dead marriage. You know what? I'm, I'm the God over death. I, I'm the God of life. Peace be with you. I'm all anxious over my health because it's going to be sending me to a grave, and I'm looking at the pattern of, it, you, and I'm going to miss the dinner, and peace be with you. He's the God who conquers death of every manner, and He comes with His messages of peace as a result. He shows up and says, peace be with you. 
And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Why? Because only God could do this. And he got it. Jesus is not like any other man. He leaves an empty tomb that you have to reckon with. He's God. And so Jesus said to them, Have you believed because you have seen me? And he looked forward in time to us who believe. We who are his disciples. He proclaims a benediction over us. He says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Isn't that nice? That's wonderful. You should be blessed by that. Okay, so how many of you know what happened to Thomas? Because I feel like I've got to clear his name because it is my name. So, <clears throat> and he's the doubting Thomas, so I just want to clear that up. A, he's not the only guy hiding behind closed doors, is he? He's not the only doubter. Everybody's laughing at the women. They think they're nuts. Thomas became a part of this little movement called Christianity, of this band of brothers that were born right out of this room that we're reading about, who went from being huddled together and hiding in fear for their lives to going out into the world and proclaiming a resurrected Jesus, and it cost them their lives. Thomas went all the way to India, you know, and like he couldn't take a plane to get there or a train or in a car, bringing the gospel to people who never otherwise here. And he was run through with spears and his dead body was thrown in a furnace. You know, for the fairy tale that he and all these other guys who ended with a similar fate made up. Pretty sure he wasn't doubting then. John then closes with verses 31 and, or 30 and 31. He says this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, and here's why. So that like these guys, you may believe. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, not a mere man, the God-man, and that by believing... You may have life in his name. Jesus is risen from the dead. He has left an empty tomb that all of humanity must account for. And this gospel is calling you to believe that he left it behind because he is the God-man, guys. And if the God-man, then, well, heck, it's not unreasonable. It's expected. Believe in Christ. And then recognize really and truly that believing in Jesus is not a private matter. That the Lord God does not call secret disciples. That what you've got going on in here needs to start coming out of here. And it needs to start coming out of your hands and out of your feet. You need to wake up to the reality that there are things more valuable than what people think about you. 
and you need to think less about what people think about you than what they need from you. Jesus. And value yourself and your popularity and possessions less than the popularity of Christ who needs to be lifted up in this city and in this world that all might believe and have life. So if you don't know Jesus, come to Him this morning. But if you do know Jesus and you're a private disciple, look at Him on the cross hanging naked publicly for you and put that to rest. Put it to rest. And then lastly, and it's not in my notes, but just in talking with so many people this week, understand that He's a God of life. We are so overcome with our issues, with our problems, with our relationships, with the reality of death in all different forms. Remember, there is hope in the face of this. There is one who majors in bringing life out of death. And he is the one who declares you blessed if you're in faith in him.